0: The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm dedicated to helping technology startups and scale ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So I'm delighted to welcome Steve Collins, partner at Frontline Ventures to today's show. Some very brief background on Steve. Prior to becoming a VC, Steve founded Havoc, an animation middleware company for console game development. He also founded Core, developer of the Core virtual machine, and most recently Swerve, the mobile marketing automation platform used by some of the world's leading brands, including Disney, Condé Nast, and Ryanair. So, uh, Steve, a very warm welcome. Good morning, Gary. Very happy to be here. Thank you. So, Steve, earlier this year, you switched from being an entrepreneur to a VC. What prompted that switch and how's that working out for
1: you? A, a tough question to start off with. I guess that really came as a result of uh, my time in Swerve. So Swerve is the most recent company I've been involved with. It was founded around about 2010 uh, and has grown you know, quite significantly since that time. And I guess after sort of six or seven years of in the company, I felt like uh, it was time for a change. And uh, the company had grown up, was sort of uh, at 100 people plus and still growing and was doing well. And uh, for me, it was just an opportunity to take a step back and figure out what I wanted to do sort of as the next phase in my career. And obviously, there are opportunities to, to look at things like maybe another startup. Looking at sort of maybe mentoring existing companies that I I know, and I'm working with a number of companies uh, in that capacity. But uh, I've known the team at Frontline, the the founding uh, partners at Frontline, for many years. Uh, The two founding partners that I know well, uh, Will and Shay, were longtime VCs in the Irish venture capital scene. And in fact, I would have pitched to them some of my earlier ventures very, very long time ago. I think I met Shay nearly two decades ago. So these are guys that I've known and I've respected for, for many years. And as they were setting up the Frontline Fund, which was around about five years ago, they involved me and lots of other entrepreneurs in the Irish scene in creating that fund. And I thought they had a very open and transparent sort of approach to their, to their fund and to the VC company that they were creating. And I really, really liked and respected that. And so I grew to, to know the fund over time, uh, helping out occasionally on due diligence calls and things like that. And then when the guys sort of uh, approached me with uh, an opportunity to join the team, it, it just timing was, was right. And, uh, and so I, I jumped at the opportunity ultimately, joined them this February. So I've been with the team coming up on, I guess, eight months now, still learning the ropes, but uh, very much enjoying it. So I guess that, that was the motivation.
0: And Steve, how are things actually working out for you? Is being a VC exactly as you imagined it to be, or are there some challenges that you hadn't really expected?
1: It is largely what I expected to a greater extent. I have worked with lots of different VCs, different partners and associates through my time in in the various companies I've been involved with. So I I think I had a reasonable understanding of what the, the role entailed. But I, I suppose there is quite a shift in you know, your approach to work uh, when you're working as a VC, uh, as opposed to, say, being a CTO in a company. Very, very different uh, sort of activities. <laughs> it seems to me sometimes a different part of your brain is being activated. So I think probably the thing that surprised me most is the, the time you get to look at any particular subject is incredibly limited. A big part of what we do, you know, as a VC is we're looking for opportunities, we're looking for leads, we're looking for companies and teams to invest in. So a huge part of that is is about networking, but also about just looking at plans, looking at proposals, looking at term sheets uh, and looking at, you know, decks, sort of uh, summarizing an investment opportunity. And the number of those you sort of have to get through in order to find the nuggets and the gems that you're looking to find is quite large. So I think probably at this point, I've assessed maybe about 200 different companies over the past while, uh, which wouldn't be unusual, that's that's fairly typical. And it just means that, you know, you you tend to only get a a very small quantum of time to look at any of these individual projects. And as, you know, coming from a CTO entrepreneur background, my tendency, and, and before that I was an academic, so my tendency is to try and go deep. Uh, to understand, you know, deeply a particular subject or an opportunity, you don't have the opportunity to do that in this case. So I think that's probably the the part that I'm finding the most challenging to to avoid sort of deep diving and to start looking for, you know, those intuitive patterns that emerge, I guess, that you rely on increasingly to, to make choices. And I suppose there's another aspect to it as well, which is it's not feeling you've some monopoly on being right and I think again as a, an academic and maybe to a lesser extent as a CTO you are trying to find an answer you're trying to validate an hypothesis you're trying to back it up with you know with rigor and with investigation whereas here you see a lot of deals you see a lot of opportunities there's an element of gut and instinct that has to go with that there's an element of just feeling that something feels correct that the founder you're talking to, is coherent, that they're passionate, that they're going to make something happen. And that's, you know, you can certainly do all the research in the world to to back that up. But in some cases, you just have to go with your gut. And and that's something I'm, I'm learning maybe to do more and more.
0: That's really interesting. That is less analytical
1: and more instinctive and intuitive. You often rely on gut and that's particularly at the earlier stage of a company evolution. We're investing in pre-seed and seed-stage companies here in Frontline. I think as you move to later-stage investments like Series A, Series B, Series C, you increasingly rely on the model, you rely on the business case, you rely on metrics, you rely on an analysis of the opportunity because there's more data to draw on. There's more evidence that you can look at, there's execution that you can assess. And it's less about the promise and it's less about the the possibility of the opportunity. So at at seed and pre-seed stage, you know, you're trying to obviously bring as much data as you can to the equation. You're trying to assess the opportunity as as analytically as you can, but because you don't have data, often these companies are pre-revenue, they're pre-product. Maybe they've just spun out of a university. Maybe they don't have a commercial team in place. So really, you know, you try and assess it based on maybe more human factors. You're very much assessing the person who's, you know, across the table at you or the team that's across the table pitching to you. You're assessing the founders, the promoters, you're you're assessing, you know, their passion for what they're they're presenting. You're assessing assessing their knowledge of the industry that they aim to sell into. You're assessing what you hope is their grit and their determinism. You know, they will see this through, you know, whatever obstacles they face over the next period of time. And ultimately, you know, no matter what a company pitches at this stage, the ultimate place they'll end up with is likely to be very different. So you're looking at that resilience and that adaptability. And these are things, you know, you can try to employ you know, psychometric evaluations, but at the end of the day, I think you're making a judgment based on your belief in that, uh, that team's capabilities. And then outside that when it comes to you know, product and technology, you of course, you know, do your diligence. You, you get assessments based on people who are experts in the space. You know, you, you make as many calls as you can possibly make to, to validate, you know, what they're saying and, and what you can't possibly know yourself as a VC. And where possible, you talk to as many customers or, you know, folks that this team has engaged with on a pilot basis or at an early stage trial basis, and just understand, you know, what do they like to work with, you know. Do you believe as a customer or a potential customer do you believe this is a, a high value proposition? is is saving or solving a big pain point for you? And you, you throw all that into a you know a big a big barrel and you shake it around a little bit and then hopefully from that emerges some sort of conviction for you as a, as a partner in, in a company that this is a deal to go after and then your job is to to convince the rest of the partners in the company. And, and that's where your judgment then, you know, gets balanced out by other people's views and opinions, and why it's, you know, super important to have not just a, an individual making the final decision, and also super important that it's not just purely consensus-driven, but somehow you can bring to bear, you know, a lot of different smart people looking at these early-stage opportunities to make that final decision. How
0: rigorous are those internal discussions within the fund, within the uh, VC team? How rigorous are the efforts of your colleagues and, and fellow partners to grill you on the, on the investment, on the startup that, uh, that you've been backing or are potentially backing, potentially trying to persuade your colleagues to uh, jump into bed
1: with alongside you? I mean, it's pretty rigorous. We probably follow a model that a lot of firms use, which is you know, we have a weekly partner meeting where you generally socialize the idea that you're, you're chasing uh, or the, the opportunity that's been presented to you. Quite often, you'll get a lot of pushback or a challenge. Questions will be raised, you know, different aspects of the business. Some of those questions you'll have answers for and some of them maybe you haven't thought of or you just don't have answers for yet. So it helps you start to, to build, you know, a set of questions and a set of activities for yourself to go and assess this opportunity with, with a greater deal of, of rigor. And that's what you do and over a subsequent you know, meeting. Some of those questions get resolved You know, over talking to customers and talking to the market. Hopefully you build a better pitch. And then ultimately what you do is you, you create a pitch document, which you pitch internally uh, to partners. It, and this is, this is the same pretty much in any VC fund. And that, that document is, is a, a bit like that uh, investor or that partner pitching on behalf of the company, that company's business, that company's view on the market. Uh, and also an independent assessment of, of the team and, uh, and things like that. And you know, again, it's it's like a pitch. Uh, you you get faced with questions. Some of the questions you'll have answers to. Some of them you won't. And ultimately, then it comes to you know, does everybody around the table feel like this is a good opportunity? Or more to the point, is this a best a, a better opportunity than the other ones that uh, are being discussed at any given point in time? And really, it's about figuring out what are the top opportunities to go after at any given time, because any VC company has a limited set of resources. I'd say different partners bring different strengths to that. You know, obviously with a fund like Frontline, we have some partners that are very experienced, have a depth of experience having gone through this process for for many years or even decades. And then there are other partners who may have sectoral experience. So in my case, for example, I'm particularly interested in, you know, deeper technologies and AI and deep learning and Data science and things of that nature. So, I can you know, help uh, address some questions in those areas. We have another partner, for example, Stephen McIntyre, who's joined us from Twitter. He ran uh, Twitter in EMEA and has significant operational experience and obviously a lot of experience in the sort of social network space. So, you know, all these different experiences and these different skill sets come together to help assess a particular opportunity. And in, in our case, all five partners. Essentially, either need to agree or, or need to come to a conclusion that at least no one vehemently disagrees with the proposition on the table, and then it can proceed.
0: Let's focus for a few moments on your pre VC life. Now, you've launched several European ventures that focused on and really rapidly scaled in the US market um, and, and did so even in their very early days. So, what lessons have you learned? about European software ventures succeeding in the States?
1: Well, I suppose I've had experience of three different companies, different stages of evolution. The first being Havoc, which was a company selling, as you said, a physics and animation software to game developers. These are developers of console games and Xbox and, mm. and PlayStation uh, and others. We started that company in Ireland, in Dublin, and it was a spin out from Trinity College, Dublin, where I was an academic. Myself and my co-founder, Hugh Reynolds, uh, took essentially the, the the larger portion of a research team out of the university and, and created the company around those individuals. And that was initially an Irish-based operation, of course, but I'd say from day one, we were looking to the States. Certainly the game industry is very concentrated in its sort of leadership happening from the States. So the major publishers are based you know, on the West Coast in the US. So for us, it was a, a very... Straightforward and easy, you know. Question: We knew we had to get to the states, and we had to get there fairly quickly. So, within a year of establishing the company and just getting, you know, product development underway, uh, we established a, a U.S. presence, helped by Enterprise Ireland, who are a great uh, Irish government agency that assists companies in in sort of achieving exports and establishing an international presence. So, we we moved very quickly to to using one of their spaces in in the valley, actually in Palo Alto, as it turns out and then established fairly quickly after that our own independent presence. And I moved over there as sort of the first executive to move and to help establish that uh, that point of presence and, and the US office. And I think from that point, which was, uh, I'm gonna say late 1999, we always have had a thesis, myself and Hugh, are, like, as co-founders of all three companies, we've had a, he- a thesis of always establishing a US presence at, right from the very start, because that for us was the market that we were looking to address. Now, I think some companies have the opportunity to build significant sales and and commercial traction in the EU or closer closer to home. I think being in Ireland, there is an interesting uh, perspective in the sense that it merely feels as close to go to the States as as it does to go to Europe. It still entails sort of moving. Uh, and certainly Ireland as a, a country is too small a market for, for most software companies. So there's an element of, there's an, an implicit impetus right from the very start to think about locating you know, elsewhere. And if you were choosing between locating in the EU or in the UK or locating in the States, I mean, obviously uh, a UK presence would be easier. But by virtue of actually making the choice of having to establish a new presence at all, it seems to make a heck of a lot more sense to, to locate that in the States when most of your customers are there. So that's what we did. And with Havoc, we scaled up and ostensibly the, the U.S. presence became the head of uh, the sort of center of marketing and sales and all our commercial activities, and also where we based our customer success activities. With the second company, Core, we established it in the States and in Ireland pretty much simultaneously. Uh, I would say within about six months of setting, literally registering the company and getting it kicked off, uh, Hugh moved over to the States and basically was based in the States since then for the rest of that company and for Swerve. And then for Swerve, which we founded sort of in late uh, 2009, early 2010, Hugh was already there. So we actually had that company set up uh, at the start as a U.S. headquartered company, essentially, albeit still an Irish uh, company by registry. And, you know, located all our sales and marketing and commercial activities uh, in our San Francisco office uh, from day one. And I think it's it's really just down to a question of where are your customers? Uh, and if you as a startup find that your primary customer base is in a particular location, then it's really important for you to be there because, you know, early growth of a startup... Is really constrained if you're not close to customers. If you're not, if you don't have the ability literally to get in a car, go down the street, and, you know, say hi, and get that feedback about how the product's being used, you know, be able to network and socialize uh, with your early customers. Those are the sorts of things that help you establish that initial impetus uh, in your commercial pipeline, and you can't do that remotely, but at least not for the sort of businesses that we were trying to build, which were arguably, you know, enterprise sales businesses. So that's very much about getting out there, meeting your customers, knowing them and understanding them and being as deeply embedded in, them, uh, in their business as you possibly can can make it. And operationally, I guess, you know, I think the most important thing in establishing that point of presence is to make sure you have executive support in doing that. Uh, you have to locate ideally one of the founders or one of the senior members of the management team in the location in order for it to be successful. I see a number of companies who attempt to move to a location by hiring in that location to be hiring a VP sales and building an office around that. I think that's incredibly difficult to do because I think you're essentially creating a separate company. You know, there's no link back to, to the, the mothership. Uh, there's no DNA transfer. Uh, there's no culture transfer, if you approach it from that perspective. And I think the way you can grow a company uh, and certainly grow a foreign operation of a company or an international operation of a company, it's really important to retain culture and retain DNA as much as you possibly can, because that allows it to still operate as part of an overall company structure rather than as a separate entity with its own goals and its own aspirations. So for us, it always meant it was either myself or Hugh moving to a location. And because we were a, a co-founding team, we had the ability to split the team in that way and, and to invest heavily, you know, in the location.
0: This idea that one of the founders or leaders of the company should relocate to well, the states rather than hiring a local VP or local GM is quite a strong viewpoint to impose on your portfolio companies so i'm curious to hear about about that have you started to have discussions with any of your portfolio companies telling them that uh whether they particularly welcome the idea or not someone on the leadership team needs to relocate to the states rather than making a local hire
1: absolutely you know and i think we we Right from the outset, when we're talking about companies, you know, when we're getting close potentially to to an investment in a company, that's a, a fundamental part of the discussion. It's, you know, what is their commitment to to international sales? Now, of course, this depends very definitely on the company itself. You know, so if we have a company that's committed to just selling in a particular geography, let's say just selling in Ireland or selling in the UK for whatever reason, that's probably unlikely. But if that were the case, then it doesn't make sense. But where it's clear that the company's market is going to be, let's say, a US market, we will set expectations right from the start. We will have that conversation with the founders to say, well, you know, what's your plan? What are you aiming to do? And at what point do you think it's important to establish the U.S. presence? And how are you going to do that? And, and do you understand the level of commitment it takes to be successful in doing that? Because there are so many examples of unsuccessful establishments of you know, international offices. What are you going to do to make sure that you are successful? And for us, you know, we, we have a thesis and we have a playbook for this. Uh, we have expertise in helping companies expand into the U.S. And you know we support them in doing that, both in identifying potentially you know partners in the US to help them from a capital perspective, you know for future funding rounds, or you know recruitment in a local geography, or even just literally the operational activities that are involved in setting up a, a US point of presence, you know in, in registering a company as a as a Delaware corporation and, and dealing with you know 4019 a issues and and. Share options and taxes and all these sorts of things. These are things that we, you know, our portfolio companies have done before, and then we we can apply a sort of a repeatable mm-hmm. sort of project to help people do that. So yes, it is the answer. We do look for companies to commit to sending a, a founder or a, a significant senior leader to the US if indeed it's the US they chose to go, uh, go after. And I would say in, in any of the companies that I've been involved with in Frontline, that's definitely on the game plan.
0: It's interesting that that's one of your, shall we say, screening criteria. And I'm also keen to understand whether propensity to replace founders and key members of the leadership team is also something that you actively look for when you're screening companies. The reason behind that question is that you've done that a number of times yourself in your pre-VC tenure. you um replaced yourself or replaced other members of the founding team with a professional ceo when the time was right so interesting to hear whether that desire or openness to to replace members of the founding team is something that you look for in in the portfolio companies you're evaluating
1: yeah that's actually a, a very Good point. And it's not one I've really reflected on very much. And and you're you're accurate to say that in previous companies, uh, myself and Hugh would have been involved in uh, replacement of CEO, bringing in what's called industry strength, bringing in bench strength through new CEOs. So both Havoc and Swerve, uh, we were involved in identifying and bringing in a new CEO to replace, in in both cases, Hugh. And Hugh stepping back into a sort of strategic role, an advisory role. Whether that influences uh, my approach to portfolio companies, I think is still up for, for grabs. I will say though that my own view is that there are some founders who have what it takes to be a CEO and to continue to be a CEO through the evolution of a company, all the way you know through to scaling and growth. And that for me is, is sort of unusual, but it also uh, it happens more often when the nature of the role of CEO changes. Uh, to accommodate that and I think you have you know some CEOs who are fabulous leaders they, they represent the heart and soul of, of the company they are people that the entire company look up, looks up to and respects and is very important to have them in place both from, from a company perspective and maybe from the market perspective as well as this person has a, a leadership position in the market it doesn't make any sense necessarily to change that what might make sense is to supplement that leader with additional uh, strengths and capabilities. You know, people around that person, typically, you know, uh, operations, people, COOs, uh, chief financial officers, certainly heads of sales and some of the, the marketing and other functions need to be there as well. But supporting specifically the divesting of the CEO responsibilities to things that are more operational and more about growth, where I think you do need experience, where I think it's very difficult to learn on the job uh, some of those aspects. In some cases, though, I think you find CEOs naturally feel it's it's a good time to move once the company starts to scale to a certain level, where the company is the type of company that doesn't need necessarily a super charismatic market leadership position that maybe that can be very well handled by a strong CTO or a head of marketing or something like that. And really, it's, it's horses for courses. And what I would say, though, is what you don't want to find are people who are clinging on to... Uh, a position of authority or a position of leadership where they really don't have the skills to execute that and you want people to you know be self-aware when they reach that stage and not to fight potentially a change in management which would is for the benefit of everybody around the table not least, least of all the the investors but all the shareholders uh, the employees the management team and more than likely the ceo themselves who may be just not in the right place for me and for, for my co-founder, Hugh, in our sort of journey through Havoc and through Swerve, both of the companies where the CEO was replaced, you know, I would say in the first instance, that was probably more motivated by uh, the investors having more experience of what was required for the company to reach the next stage. And it, it probably didn't come from myself or Hugh, as this was our first venture, but we were very supportive of that and were involved in the hiring process. And ultimately, the, the new CEO came on board. You know, We worked with that CEO for a number of years, and then we left, and very soon thereafter, uh, he successfully sold the company to Intel. So I think that was a, a positive story, a, a good execution. And a good execution helped along, I think, by the investors at, at that point. With Swerve, I think it was very much more proactive. I think myself and Hugh understood as we were growing that company, it needed to have a very much more significant West Coast presence. And that meant, you know, raising money in the West Coast, identifying West Coast uh, investors, and to a large extent, it meant that, you know, the CEO from our perspective, anyway, needed to also be embedded in that culture and in that space. And so we we went out and purposely looked for a very strong, you know, industry experienced CEO, and ultimately we found that uh, with, with Christopher Dean, who's currently CEO of Swerve. And he's a person that myself and Hugh have been very supportive of over the last three years, working very closely with him on his management team. And then ultimately it got to the point where, you know, the company was scaling even further and it made no sense or my, you know, contribution and Hugh's contribution to that story was diminishing, you know, as, as often happens for very early stage founders. Uh, and so we both sort of simultaneously decided it was time to to let CD run the show and, we stepped aside and continue to act as advisors and i'm still a chief scientist but that i think was an example where it was very much motivated by by us uh, our investors were very supportive of this the timing was right and we found that the right sort of person to to join so i think it was the ideal scenario i have seen situations where CEOs find it difficult to step aside. And I think that's where mentoring and coaching helped enormously to, to get them to understand maybe what's next for them in their careers. Or in some cases, we find that it's absolutely possible for a CEO to re, to maintain their status and to supplement with very strong management around them, you know, typically CFO or COO. So, I mean, it, it really depends on the circumstance. And I wouldn't say it's a requirement or a definitive part of our strategy uh, to replace anybody. It's really just looking at the strengths of the team you know, as they evolve and make sure the right team is in place to make the company a success for everybody. That's a uh,
0: great advice for, um, any CEO that is, uh, perhaps ready to be replaced or to, to look for a replacement. Um, maybe some, uh, mentoring from the investors involved on, on how to go about that, because I think emotionally it's not the easiest thing for a founder to do, to step back and hand over the reins. So, uh, all the support they can get from those who are close to them close to the business is going to be uh, invaluable but moving on from that from the idea of a ceo replacements I wanted to talk for a few moments about your passions outside of being a vc or being an entrepreneur uh, I read on the uh, on the website actually that you still harbor the dream of designing and coding games so do you have any other aspirations or dreams outside of the world of technology and outside of the world of uh, venture capital?
1: Game industry is one that uh, has always ha- held a special fascination for me. And this is you know, certainly very independent of my role as a, as a partner in a VC firm. My career, I guess, started out writing computer games uh, when I was quite young. So I started writing games when I was 14 and 15 and had first games commercially published. You know by the time i was uh, 17 which was cool and it was an area that i was just always very very interested in i'm hugely interested in the overlap of science technology and art and design in particular having been an artist as a as a kid as well and i think havoc as a company was born out of that passion for the game industry i've never really been an out and out gamer i do play games but uh, you know i think for me it's understanding the technology that underpins game industry, and it really is a fascinating and incredibly creative and fast-moving space. A lot of the technologies we sort of take for granted uh, today quite often were were born out of the game industry. You know, arguably the technology that's underpinning the recent advances in deep learning, which is, you know, uh, sort of super-scaling GPUs from NVIDIA and, and others, started out life as 3D graphics cards, you know, uh, motivated entirely by the game industry. Uh, And I think, you know, the chip manufacturers in particular have been, you know, competing head to head on the basis of, you know, what their technology can do for the games industry as being the most visible uh, example of of -of state-of-the-art, you know, from a public perspective. So I've always really enjoyed that. With Havoc, it was established to try and, you know, be part of that story and to create a technology that changed how games were made. And I think we actually succeeded with that, which is extraordinarily gratifying, to be honest, looking back at it. And indeed, that company and that founding team is still together. After being acquired by uh, Intel, Havoc was working on, you know, more platform-related stuff and then more recently got acquired by Microsoft. And now we're doing some, I believe, very exciting things that uh, could be, impactful for for everybody into the future. So really excited to see that story continue. But the the industry is one that I've always loved. Uh, The creative act of creating these games is something that I've always really enjoyed and I've enjoyed understanding what's behind the scenes as well. Uh, I'm a bit like one of those guys that sits beside you in a in a movie theater and you know as the special effects are happening is pointing out you know all the green screening technology that's going on or the character animation that's been used to, to drive a particular character or you know the compositing tech that's been used to delete the wires that are clearly suspending something in space all that you know is, is stuff I really really enjoy. I guess at some point at some point in, in the future I would harbor a desire to, to be reconnected with that in some way. I think there's some opportunity to do so you know in in, uh, in the venture capital world. But, uh, you know, technologies that are limited specifically to the game industry tend not to have as big an impact as, as we like to see. And so quite often there isn't an opportunity to, to invest in those sorts of technologies. But I think as we see particularly augmented reality emerge, I think there are going to be spaces there that some of that sort of early passion that I have for the game industry, uh, you know, can be exercised. Having said that, you know, that passion I talk about is, is matched by a passion for, for technology in general deeply fascinated by machine learning uh, and the recent advances particularly in deep learning this is an area i'm sort of studying and trying to get up to speed on and you know obviously this is a space that is disrupting very very many different industries and it's one that i want to be more involved in through the fund and it's one that as a fund we want to you know gain more expertise in and hopefully have more participation in over time so that that sort of satisfies a lot of that technology creative itch that i would have um, but maybe someday i'll get back to the the game industry. I hope it'll be on my own terms where I can fund it myself though. I, I wouldn't like to look for funding for, for something in that space.
0: Steve, final question from me. Uh, you've been exposed to European VC for a long time, both as as a, an entrepreneur and now as as part of the actual um, VC fund community. You've also been exposed to the Silicon Valley VC and startup ecosystem. What would you like to see change in the European venture capital and startup ecosystem? I'd have to sort of
1: think a little bit on what the differences are. And I think the fundamentally big difference between, say, the Valley investing and call it European investing, or even London investing, the Valley is a system in and of itself. It's extraordinarily well connected and networked. Connective tissue just underpins everything about what makes the Valley operate so successfully. You know, everybody knows everybody. People are co-investing. There's a lot of, you know, interoperability. There's a lot of motion between the funds. And I think that creates just a machinery that's very, very difficult uh, to beat. I I will say, though, that it, it also, from time to time, has a tendency to very rapidly You know cause inflationary effects to to apply Um, and you know we see bubbles emerge very very quickly and they nearly always seem to start in the valley because of this connectedness you know once a hot topic starts then valuations start to drive up very quickly as larger funds compete essentially on price rather than on anything else and that's 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 a difficulty nearly with the space and it it means that it's a prices out maybe some more prudent funds I think there's a double-edged sword there. I, I would love to see that level of connectivity exist in Europe. And I think it's growing. You know, I, I can certainly see it emerging. I, I see us participating in, in building that, focusing very heavily on, on networking and uh, establishing relationships with other funds and being very open to co-investing either as lead or as you know, joining an existing round uh, that's coming together. So I think that's all part and parcel of it. And to a large extent, I'd nearly say this is just a time thing. You know, things that have been going and happening, say, in the Valley, as an exemplar, you know, it takes just a couple of years for that to translate to a similar level of activity or at least a similar approach. But it's happening. Um, and, you know, I think that's the, the thing I, I'd look at. I, one thing I would say, though, is that innovation is is not in short supply. There are huge numbers of very exciting companies emerging in Europe, certainly in London, certainly in Dublin. And, you know, we can go toe-to-toe with the Valley in, in many different areas. And that's what I hope we will continue to do. And I think more and more, maybe we're going to see situations where it's not necessary for a company to raise money in the Valley mm-hmm. to be super successful, that that company can be super successful in Europe. And I think we're, we've, we've started to see some really great examples of that. And hopefully, as we continue to have that increasing network effect and the increasing connectivity between the funds here, that becomes more and more of a a realisable possibility rather than the default being I need to go over and raise money from Andreessen Harrods in the States.
0: So the future is looking bright for uh, European software engineers or even European
1: software entrepreneurs? I I would say the future is looking incredibly bright for both of those people. Uh, Software engineers will have a job. They might need to move occasionally, but they will absolutely have a job. So Let's keep getting those uh, graduates coming out in in STEM technology areas uh, and and start to build a real competitive advantage over here. Steve, thank
0: you so much for joining me today and for sharing those valuable insights for entrepreneurs looking to scale their uh, enterprise software ventures globally.
1: You're very welcome Gary, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. This
0: episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.